0: See, there it goes. There it goes again. Um, But we are continuing our series in the book of Revelation. And, you know, sometimes you look at a church in the book of Revelation and you feel like it's not really relatable. I don't really understand what's going on. I have no idea what the history is and what the background is. Today, we're looking at the church of Thyatira and... It's very modern, <laughs> and what I mean by that is Thyatira, it wasn't that important of a city, but what was important about Thyatira was their work. They really, they were a commercial city, so their commercial lives, their work lives. Now, what did they do? Uh, they, they traded, they did commerce in wool, linen, apparel, uh, dyed uh, materials, leather work, tanning, and bronze work. So a lot of this, you can call, if you really want to put a label to this, you can call it blue collar or whatever. But essentially, they really cherished their work. And they also had labor unions. <laughs> they had these guilds that had power and influence over their government, their, their political policies, etc., etc., over their society. And what's interesting about Thyatira, they valued work, so they were very commercial in, in, in some of their values, but they, they weren't very religious. And they had temples, they worshipped Apollo, they worshipped Artemis, but they weren't that religious. They were very practical in that sense. And what's interesting is that in a lot of ways, we're kind of in the same boat, even though they existed thousands of years ago. And we're here in 2019. Um, The church, so to sum all this up, to help you better understand what this passage is about and what Jesus has to say to us today, the church was part of a culture that valued work. And like Duke shared, we're starting our community life groups uh, this month. And we're, we're focusing on faith and work because work is just a major part of our lives. We work hard. Right? Some of us uh, have long hours. Some of us have shorter hours. But we value our work. Um, and we have to think about how do we bring our faith into our workplaces in a way that's not additive or in a way that's not... Uh, uh, that word I got from uh, this guy named David Kim. Um, he called it uh, the kind of faith and work when it comes together, where it's additive, where, where you kind of bring a Bible study into your, work, into your uh, workplace versus something that's more uh, integrating, meaning the way you work and the culture of your workplace it's just defined by Christian values and it's defined by Christian principles. And, of course, he was arguing for uh, more of a integrating work Uh, faith and work versus an additive one. But how do we live faithfully as Christians in our workplace? Because it's really important to us. You see, the church in Thyatira, they also valued work, and they were Christians. They were really devout, loyal Christians in some sense, because the text, if you were listening, if you're reading along with Duke, it said that they were growing, that their works later were greater than their works prior. Meaning, they were growing in how they lived their lives as Christians, not only in quantity, but in quality. So not in the amount of stuff they did for God, but in the, in the quality of how they lived for God. right? Um, so in that sense, they're really good. But Jesus, in the middle of the passage, he says, but I have this against you. And it's really interesting because... Um, there were some, some sins that had to do with immorality, right? And that's kind of like our culture. Our culture today, whether you're in Atlanta or wherever else in this nation, we value work, but we also kind of tolerate in our culture immorality, right? And what does Jesus have to say about this, right? So that's something we want to look at. I want to show you first how Jesus presents himself because, with any context, with any people or lifestyle, we want to understand the truth, right? God wants us to understand the truth. And in order for us to understand the truth, He communicates it in such a way that we can relate, right? Without changing the core message of the eternal truth. And the way that Jesus presents himself to the church at Thyatira in verse 18 is, number one, he says he's the son of God. And what that means is he's making an intentional contrast with Apollos that the people in Thyatira worshiped. The Apollos was the son of Zeus. So Apollos was kind of a son of God as well. And what Jesus is saying, look, you live in a city that worship Apollos, who people say he's the true son of God, but I'm telling you, that Apollos is not the son of God, I am. And so he presents himself as the son of God. And what he's saying is, it's not Apollos that has authority over your life. It's me, Jesus. So Jesus is saying, every, the way that you live your life, your value about how you work, where you work, what you do for a living, right, and the way that you recreate, and the way that you have relationships with people, whether they be platonic or romantic, I, Jesus Christ, have full authority over your life. Not these deities in Thyatira, and not your work, right? And not what you think about intimacy. Now, after presenting himself as the son of God, he says, I have eyes like a flame of fire. And remember, one of the things that Thyatira was known for was bronze work. And in order to uh, manipulate metal, you need heat, you need fire, and you need some intense fire too. And so what he's saying is, when Jesus says, I have eyes like a flame of fire, and he's communicating to the church in Thyatira, he's saying, I can purify, and I can separate the impurities from the pure. I can refine. I am the refiner, right? Right? And what he's saying is, in a society that is relativistic, that says no one has, no one, no one really knows what is true, you just live your life. And what we value is what you do with your life, what you work, how you work. And so if one person works this and another person works that, you see, one thing I didn't tell you is that every work field, every field of work, every guild and every clan and every labor union during the time had its own patron deity. In other words, they had their own God in their workplace. So the metal workers had a metalworking God. And the leather workers, right? The leather tanners, they had their leather working God, right? And what Jesus is saying is that I am going to separate. It's not your, your, your work God's. And it's not your labor union gods that tell you what's right and what's wrong. What he's saying is, I have eyes like a flame of fire, meaning I am the one who will separate impurity from purity. I I am the one that will separate raw materials that are not bronze with pure bronze, right? And that's what he's saying. He's saying it's not your gods that tell you how to, they don't have any authority to tell you how to live your life, right? And you see, it's a, it's, it was a society that was not really religious. So why did they have gods? It was conventional. It was convenient to have gods. They're gods. They were a part of that society. They grew up in it, right? So, the, you know, typically if you, grew up, if you grow up in something, you don't really question it, right? Tim Keller said that a fish in water doesn't really deliberate water, Right, You got to get out of the, if you're a fish, you got to get out of that water, right? And you got to see the water and see fish in the water from a perspective where you're not in it to really see what life in water is and what life without water is, right? And so what he's saying here is that I am the one who tell you because I am not in your water. I am not there. I am Resurrected, I'm in heaven, and I have eyes that are like a flame of fire. Right? I can divide what is impure from the pure. And not only that, he says, I have feet like burnished bronze. And the way that Jesus presents himself is not only do I have authority, not only can I see everything and see it right, and not only can Jesus see what is right from what is wrong purely without mistake. He also has the power. Burnished bronze is hard. It's hardened metal. I have and it's it's his feet. So he has the power to destroy and also to give life. Right? And that's how he presents himself. So in a society that values work where in every workplace there was a patron deity that you worship not not because you were religious but because it was conventional, it was convenient your deity was there to serve your practical gain that you can get from your workplace, right? And that's how most pagan worship is. It's not about, you know how we say we have to be God-centered and Christ-centered, right? These patron deities, being in a city that wasn't religious, the gods weren't there. The people weren't there to be centered upon their deity. The deities were there to be centered upon the people, The deities were there to make life more convenient and luxurious and enjoyable for the people. The people weren't there for God, okay? In that context, Jesus, he now brings in, there are two things I know about you, church, speaking to the church of Thyatira. Number one, I know your works of love and faith. And what he's saying is, the works of love love translates into service. What does love look like? If you, if you want to know what an intangible, uh, abstract concept like love looks like, you've got to see service. If there's no service, there's no love. That's the connection that Jesus is making here in verse uh, 19. I know your works. Uh, that's the umbrella statement. What kind of works? Two kinds. Works of love, works of faith. And then he brings in service and patient endurance. What that means is love translates physically to service. So if you have love, you have service, you're serving. And if you have faith, which is dependence and loyalty to God, reliance on God, you have patient and enduring. So if you, are, if you have faith that God is going to pull you through, you're going to endure. And you're going to be patient about anything that God brings into your life. So that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying you are a church that is really good at being a serving church Being a church that endures patiently through hard times to get the job done. Why? Because these are people who value hard work. They value work. And so they're good at it. Right? Now, here's the thing. He also adds, your latter works, I I mentioned this from the beginning, your latter works exceed the first. Meaning... As you live longer together as a church and as you guys grow in community, that's exactly it. You guys aren't stagnant. You guys are growing. How? Not just in how much you do for God, but also in how you do it for God. It's not just a haphazard, kind of put-it-together-last-minute kind of service or enduring. It's you're not giving God scraps from your life. This is a church that the quality was raised. Right? The quality, not just the quantity. Um, for example, metalworking, right? It was part of uh, Thyatira. Uh, for those of you who know, uh, like gold, for example, there's 10 carat, 14 carat, 18 carat, 24 carat, right? I think I got them all. I don't know. Um, the difference in the number, for those of you planning to propose, right? <laughs> The difference in number is the amount of gold there is. So yeah, when you get, when you get gold, technically, you're not getting pure gold, <gasps> right? It's a scam, right? Right? Blood gold, not just blood diamonds, right? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, there is, in 10 karat gold, there's less than 50% gold in there. There's like 42%. 42% of 10 karat gold is gold. Everything is other raw, raw metals. It makes it stronger because gold is very pliable. Um, the higher you go, the more gold you have. 18 karat I think, has about 75% gold. And 24 carat is like 99.8% gold, right? And 14 carat is kind of like your happy balance. The reason why I'm, why I'm telling you this is I'm talking about that that kind of shows the kind of works there is, right? Like, is your works mixed, right? The tr- for, for the Church of Thyatira, their latter works exceeds their previous works. What, that, what he was saying is, the longer you grew together and the longer you lived as a Christian, as a church together in community, not only was there more gold, but there was more gold in one piece of gold, right? It was less impurities, so it was less of you and more of a, of, a, of a Christ-centered Christian life. It was about less about me and what I can get out of God and it was more about God. So that's, what, that's the first thing that Jesus knows that he communicates to the church of Thyatira. Look, you guys are a growing church. Not just in quantity, but in quality. What that looks like in our church, quantity would be numerical. Quality would be your heart the closer your heart is to the heart of God, right? The less self-absorbed and selfish we are as we get older spiritually, right? And the more we are like Christ in his incarnational mission and how he comes into a place and he brings the love of God, the redemptive love of God to people, right? So quality versus quantity. This is a church that was growing not only numerically, but also in their hearts. Their hearts were being discipled. Now, the second thing that Jesus tells them is, but, but I have this against you. It's really striking. You shouldn't gloss over that. The fact that Jesus, you know, it's really easy for a church, for us, we look at all our strengths and we can say we can justify ourselves. We rationalize it. God, yeah, God's pleased with us. We have this and this and this, but, you know, he's not against us. He's always for us. God is always for us. And then you quote you quote verses where it says God is for us. Yeah. He is. And that's why Christ died for us. He is for us. But at the same time, when you look at a verse like this, when there's good going on, but then there's a tolerating of sin. He also says, I have this against you. So in a sense, God is for us. But in another sense, if we're tolerating sin, he is against us, church. He is against us if there is sin that we are allowing to just fester and we're harboring sin, the one who saved us is saying he is against us. Okay? So there's no easy believism here. Just because forgi- your sins have, have been forgiven, you can't say, it doesn't really matter how I live my life. It's okay if I have some sin in my life because God loves me. You can't say that. Okay, then you're not worshiping the same God that he reveals himself to be in the Bible. Now, coming back to Revelation chapter two, verse 20, what is their sin? Well, there is immorality and idolatry, okay? And he says, but I have this against you, verse 20, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. Now, et cetera, et cetera, you can read all that. And what I wanna focus on right now at this point is the word tolerate. What is the difference between tolerating someone and forgiving someone? What's the difference? Right? You can kind of mull that over. Let me invite you to read the next verse to help you define the difference. Revelation 2, verse 21. After everything that he says about this woman Je- Jezebel who's promoting immorality in the church and idolatry, he says in verse 21, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent. What's the difference? When you tolerate someone, right, they're with you, they're, you're still kind of interacting with each other. There's interpersonal relationship happening, but what? The person has no need to repent of anything. They don't need to repent. It's okay. You should tolerate, you should accept me for who I am, right? The difference of forgiveness is that when you forgive someone and not just tolerate them, the people that are forgiven, they repent. They repent. That's the difference. That's the difference that Jesus is saying in verse 21. He gave her time to repent. You see, the church, they were just tolerating her, right? The church was, she was kind of there in the church and the church didn't discipline her they didn't address her sin. They, they hung out with her when she was there, when they did stuff together, but they didn't address sin. And Jesus is contrasting himself with how the, church treat, how the church of Thyatira treated this person in verse 20 with how he treats this person in verse 21. And he's saying, I gave her time to repent but she refuses to repent. So the difference between a church that tolerates someone who promotes immorality and idolatry versus Jesus, who looks at that same person who's doing that, is that he expects the person to repent. Whereas someone who tolerates someone, you don't expect the person to repent, nor do you call them to repentance, right? Now, another issue with this person in the church of Thyatira, there was, she had an internal affirmation. She had an internal call that she was a prophet for God. Like God spoke to her and she had the authority to speak to people. But she didn't have an external call. And that's the problem, right? And that's how spiritual superiority happens. When you feel you're spiritually superior than someone else, is you you feel it, but you don't wait for anybody else to feel it. Right? You, don't, you don't care whether people agree with you or not. You just, as long as you feel it, it's true. And you know what that is. That's called relativism in a religious context. You know, it's like, did you, did you believe Christians believe in relativism? Yes. You know, how the, you know how it's obvious? It's when people feel they have some sort of authority without having the church and God affirming that authority from the outside. And that's what, that's what was happening with this person. There was an internal affirmation that she was a prophetess, but there was no external one. And she was exercising teaching about uh, immorality and idolatry, even though Christ never sanctioned this kind of teaching. Right? And this is what Jesus promises. Again, just as he identifies two things about the church, he, he promises two things. Number one, judgment. Number two, life. You look in verse 22 through 23, he promises judgment to anyone who doesn't repent, who doesn't repent of the immorality. And what's interesting in verse 22, and we, I don't think we could push this too far because it's, it's, it's prophecy and it's kind of, it's very figurative because Jesus uses the language of the bed, Right? So you can't, with prophecy, you always have to be careful about pushing things too far or too little, right? But if you look in verse 22, it seems like Jesus is saying that there is an eternal punishment, yes, an eternal spiritual physical punishment that is to come, which is hell, for anyone who doesn't repent of sin. But it seems to also say that on the temporary before Christ returns and he judges unrepentant sinners, he seems to say that there is actually a... Um, I'm going to say this real quick. Sexual judgment for sexual sin. <laughs> okay? There is a fleshly judgment for fleshly sin. That's what it seems to say in verse 22. And that her spiritual children will die. That's another judgment in verse 23 at the beginning. This is the eternal death. Anyone who listens to that teaching and who follows... This kind of teaching, their end, even though they're part of a church that's growing, both both in quantity and in quality, their end is eternal hellfire. It's a scary thought. It's a sobering thought, right? That you can be in a place where you feel, and everyone feels, and everyone knows, and you know you're growing, and yet your end is hellfire. I mean... Talk about a false sense of security, right? Um, And he says, I will give to each one of you according to your works, verse 23. And that is really key as to understanding how we are saved. Because those who are unrepentant, Jesus says, I will give to each of you according to your works. Those who are repentant, he will give to each of them according to his works, according to Christ's work on the cross. And the righteousness that he imputes to sinners, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5, when he who knew no sin became sin for us, so that we may become the righteousness of God. What that's talking about is imputation, right? After promising judgment on those who don't repent, he promises life to those who do. Those to, those to, uh, those who do not hold this teaching in verse 24, and who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. Nobody really knows what this deep things of Satan is, but let me give you a verse in Psalms to help you kind of, not illuminate, but kind of get a in, a, a beginning understanding picture of what the deep things of Satan could mean. And I encourage you to turn to it with me because listening and reading really help with learning and retaining information. So uh, Psalm 64, verse 5 through 6, if you look at that, Psalm 64, verse 5 through 6, it talks about the things of man that are deep. Right? And it's a a negative description. And I think it, it sheds light on what the deep things of Satan are. Psalm 64, verse five through six, they hold fast to their evil purpose. They talk of laying snares secretly, thinking who can see them. They search out injustice, saying, we have accomplished a diligent search for the inward mind and the heart of man are deep. Interesting, huh? So what are, what, how can we begin to understand if we can understand it at all, what the deep things of Satan are? The deep things of Satan are, it could be, according to Psalm 64, verse five through six, there's an evil intent of people to somehow trap and secretly plan to trap other people with the understanding, nobody's watching, I'm not gonna get caught. And so they feel the liberty and the license to go through with these evil thoughts that are harmful to people, and they do it secretly. And notice, it's not by themselves they do it. They have a group because it says they talk of laying snares. So it's usually not just an individual person doing evil things by himself, but there's more than one. And the way they rationalize it is, I'm not going to get caught. So that's the, the, the concern is not, this is, this is sinning against God. That's not the concern, that they're sinning against God and they're hurting someone. Their, their concern is, I don't want to get caught and I'm not going to get caught, right? Uh, we have accomplished the diligent search. People who, who kind of plan together, also, maybe they use Google. <laughs> I mean, that's searching too, right, today? Maybe you use Google to try to learn how to harm someone. Um, It's kind of dark, but it may be true. And it says at the end, for the inward mind and heart of man are deep. Right? The inward mind and heart. So it's not, the deep things of Satan could be something that's not only cerebral and mental and intellectual, but it's also very much emotional. Right? That's what's going on. Um, And he continues to say, I'm not going to put any other burden on you. Right? but just hold to this until I return. And what, he refer, what he's referring to in verse 18 is the Bible, the revealed will of God. It says, hold fast to my word because the prophetess and everyone who follows the prophetess, they're not holding to the word of God because they're promoting immorality and idolatry in the church. Right? And he says, to the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he promises this kind of Uh, this future where they will reign with him, right? And I just want to point out to you what verse 28 says. This is the greatest reward. This is the greatest promise of life that Jesus gives to those who conquer, to everyone who has ears to hear, right? Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He promises him to the one who conquers to the end, who does not succumb to the teaching of this Jezebel, who promotes immorality and... Um, idolatry in the church. He says, to him, I will give him, I will give him the morning star. Now, what is that? What is the morning star? When you look in Revelation 22, verse 16, I, Jesus, it says, have sent my, sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David. And guess what he says? The brighter morning star. And so what Jesus promises to the churches, to those who conquer and who do not submit to the teaching and the lifestyle of, of um, Jezebel and the morality and the idolatry that she's promoting. He says, I will give you myself. And you know, that is a picture of what glory looks like when Jesus returns. When the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, Revelation 21 through 22, and there's a new heavens and a new earth, Right, he gives himself. There is no longer a temple because he's the temple. There's no longer night because he is the light. Right, he gives himself, and that that is the greatest promise of joy and life there is. And let me just close with this: What does this mean for us as a church today? Let me tell you what this looks like today, what this Church of Thyatira today a church of Thyatira looks like a church that is very active in social justice and a church that values hard work. Right? But, but, a church of Thyatira today also tolerates immorality, <laughs> any kind of immorality. You can talk about sex outside of marriage, Homosexuality, pornography, abuse of women, whatever it is, they tolerate it. And this is very sobering because we have to understand, we have to ask ourselves, how much of our culture, our cultural values have shaped us instead of us shaping our culture? I'll give you a really quick example, right? And I'm going to move on real quick. I'm saying this because I love you guys and I care about you guys and your eternal future, not just your 20, 30, 40, 50-something future, right? Cohabitation, okay? Where you live with someone of the opposite sex, you're not married, but you're there, you're dating, and you're sharing a bed together. It's acceptable in our society. In fact, it's promoted. Saying this is the right way to pursue a healthy relationship, because you get to know the person instead of going into a marriage and getting a divorce and not being ready. That's, that's part of the immorality, the teaching of Jezebel. That's a church of Thyatira. It's a church that's really energetic about social justice. It's a church that's really energetic about hard working hard. It's a really good work ethic. But when it comes to sexuality, they're just very loose. And they're very accepting. They allow their culture to define them instead of us being the light, salt and light of the world and seasoning and shaping our culture. And they allow people who do not repent of these sexual sins to be in positions of influence in the church. Okay? Now, we are a church. We try to reach out to our neighborhood. Okay? We care about social justice. We care about hard work. <laughs> So many people here who work hard, right? We have to make sure that we are submitting to the, to the Word of God, to Christ's authority, right? Not to what our culture says is good and right. Not to those, um, those uh, guild, the deities, the patron deities of the guilds, the gods of our workplaces, right? Our God is the Son of God. It's Jesus Christ, right? Our God It's not our culture, it's not our high school, it's not our college and all that comes with college culture. That's not our God, okay? Our God is not our workplace and our bosses and the work culture that's there. Our God is not um, swiping right or swiping left. That's, That's not our God, right? Our God tells us what's right and wrong, right? And I just want to challenge you with that. And the thing is, be encouraged. Because Jesus is giving us all time to repent. And there's good things and there's bad things. But God forbid we ever come to a point where we become a church where we justify the bad things because we're doing good. God forbid. Because you know what that is? That's ultimately a work salvation attitude. That means you should be accepted because of all the good you're doing instead of thinking in a grace salvation, in a faith salvation attitude, where you say, Christ has died for my sin. And it's not because I'm doing good, and it's not because I'm not doing as much much evil as the other guy, but it's because Christ was punished, and he was judged for my sin. And that love and that sacrifice (coughs) causes me to be changed, not only in the good that I do, but even in the sin that I allow in my life, that I repent of it and that I seek Christ to become more like him in that area that has not yet been shaped by the gospel. And so I wanna leave you with that and may that encourage you to live faithfully to God by the grace that he supplies and from the work of Jesus Christ that he did for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for loving us in such a way that you would sacrifice, You would sacrifice the life of your son for us. There's good in us, Lord. We're not as bad as we can be. But Lord, there's also very sinful parts of us. Um, every, Every aspect of who we are has been corrupted by sin. And yet you sent your son knowing that about us, knowing that there was good and bad and that we were totally corrupted because of the sin and that we're totally broken. Um, Knowing that, you sent Jesus to die for us. Lord, for us, it would make sense to die for someone who is honorable, who is respectable, who is worthy to be died for. But Lord, we see your great love for us, your unfathomable, incomprehensible love for us and that When we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Lord, we thank you. And we ask that you grant us the grace to live our lives according to his authority and according according to the power of his great redeeming love. In Jesus' name, amen.